0: morning we thought about the period when Israel was ruled by kings. But before that, after they had entered into the promised land under the command of Joshua, there was a period when they were ruled by judges. Um, there are seven cycles in the book of Judges. They, uh, unfortunately, each one is a downward spiral. It begins with the people serving the Lord, but gradually over time... They fall away from worshipping him. There were other gods, particularly the god Chemosh in Canaan, and they would fall into worshipping foreign idols and foreign gods. The Lord would bring discipline on them, usually through foreign powers who would invade. The people would cry to the Lord, and he would raise up a judge or judges to lead an uh, offensive against the opposing forces, and the people would know a period of freedom. Starts with some very good judges, ends up with um, Samson, a very confused and conflicted judge. And perhaps you'll remember how the book of Judges ends, the very final verse. In those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So this morning we looked at a sad period under the rule of uh, wicked kings in the northern kingdom of Israel, but this evening I'm taking you back a bit before that to a period when the country was a mess from top to bottom and they were struggling with these different judges who from time to time the Lord would raise up to try and restore some order. And so we come to the book of Ruth and the opening verses, which we didn't read in the days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land. Now God had warned the people That if they disobeyed him, there would be consequences, that he would make the rain like dust, and the ground would be dry, and there would be no food. And given that that's the background, it's very difficult to interpret this other than as God disciplining the people because of their disobedience. So I don't know when exactly in the period of the judges this took place, but obviously all is not going well. And so there's a family, and they're living in Bethlehem, in Judah, the part of the country that in due course would prove to be the, the longer-lasting kingdom and the area where there was greater faithfulness to what God required. Um, they actually live in Bethlehem. Um, Bethlehem means house of bread. And so there's something of an irony here that Where they were living, the house of bread, there wasn't any. And so this man, Elimelech, and his wife, Naomi, they had two sons. And now they're faced with a difficult decision. In Israel, in Judah, in Bethlehem, there's no food, or very little food. And the famine is bad. But, over across to the east, In the land of Moab, things appear to be better. The issue they face is that the Moabites were descendants of um, incest um, from Noah. And they had opposed the children of Israel when they were coming out of Egypt. And God had prohibited the children of Israel from having any significant relations with Moabites. To the extent that... A Moabite coming into the bands of Israel was barred from the temple for at least ten generations. And the people of Israel were warned not to intermarry with them. That was forbidden because previously the Moabites had um, incentivized the Israelites to worship foreign gods. So Moabites were persona non grata in Israel. Israel in Canaan was the promised land where God was and where he would bless his people. Moab was the land of the infidel, the godless, those opposed to Jehovah Yahweh, those rather who served amongst other gods, Chemosh and Baal, those who offered their infant children as sacrifices to their god. So the choice between that Naomi and Elimelech face is do we stay in the promised land, which is under God's judgment, and face the possibility of famine, and I suppose in its worst case, death, or do we emigrate to a land that God has forbidden to us in every meaningful respect to live with the enemies of the living God to put ourselves in a culture that is opposed to all that Yahweh stands for, and where with our young sons, if they grow up, they are almost certainly going to be badly influenced by the culture of the Moabites. Is that a hard decision? Actually, it was evidently a very difficult decision. Difficult because there's the immediate here and now and the uncertain future. The immediate here and now is starvation. The uncertain future is, well, we don't know what will happen in Moab. Perhaps they thought they could influence the Moabites. Perhaps they thought that God would, would would, as it were, put his rulings into abeyance because they were in difficult circumstances. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. Now, my friends, you and I inevitably end up facing difficult decisions. Living in this world is not easy, is it? Unless we retreat into a Christian bubble, there are going to be a whole raft of really difficult issues we've got to face. And that's increasingly the case as our society moves further and further away from what we would consider to be Christian norms. So this is not abstract, is it? This isn't something that we're not going to have to handle. It may not be that we're going to move to Moab. But we're going to have some difficult decisions to make. And the challenge for you and I is what are we going to do? Are we going to allow the pressures of the moment and the very difficulties of our circumstance to persuade us that we should ignore God's word? Naomi and Elimelech felt presumably that they were doing the right thing. But the consequences were actually pretty grim. First of all, Elimelech dies. And Naomi finds herself with two sons who in due course marry two Moabitesses. And then Marlon and Chilion die. And this woman finds herself alone in a society that had no social safety nets, where it was very much a man's world, with two daughters-in-law and no male progeny, She is weak and defenseless and elderly. And surely as we look at that, Although we might feel some sympathy for her in her deep distress, we must recognize that if you choose to ignore God's law, then there are going to be consequences. And I don't know, my friend, exactly what that means for you. I don't know where the temptations are. Is it pressure to do with fiduciary matters, how accurate you are with your accounting, how faithfully you are abiding by the law? Is it to do with relationships? Is it the very desirable that actually lies outside God's revealed will? Is it to do with choices for career? Is it to do with how you're going to interact with others? Is it what you're doing in your private time when you're alone? Is it the temptation that you find so alluring and attractive and so difficult to resist? Please take the warning of the text. If you choose to ignore God's word, there will be very undesirable consequences. Don't take it from me. Take it from Naomi. That's the past. What about the present then? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Look at verse 6. Uh, Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. Ten times in this chapter, the Hebrew word, verb for return, shuv, is used. So the writer is wanting us to recognize that there's a turning, if you like, a repenting here, a returning. Naomi arose uh, to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that, and then I find this really interesting, isn't it? What had she heard? Had she heard that there'd been an economic uptick back home in Canaan? Had she heard that the farmers were doing really well and the crops were really um, fecund this year? Had she heard that um, she would be much happier back in her former land? What she actually hears <clears throat> is that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now, when your child asks you, you know, where do we get our food from, mummy? or daddy? Um, Is the answer, and I don't know, looking at you, is it Waitrose or Sainsbury's or Tesco or Lidl or whatever? Is that the answer? Or do we see beyond that and recognize that every good gift we receive is actually the Lord's? Well, Naomi, despite her compromised position, recognizes that. She'd heard in the fields that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. So in her distress, in her need, in her sadness, she still has a heart to return to Bethlehem. And she sets out with her two daughters-in-law. And Naomi doesn't come out of the story always well. She hears this good news and she's resolved to go back. And she sets out with her two daughters-in-law. But it's almost as if as they travel along, she goes, mm, I remember now that scripture says, that Moabites are deeply unwelcome in Israel. And so i better think about mutters-in-law. So in verse 8, she says to them, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. Very interesting there. It, it appears, from the way it's used in Scripture, that normally it would be father's house, because that's where you're, you're brought up, and the father um, rules the house. But when it's something to do with romance or intimacy, it's the mother's house. So Naomi is thinking about them in sort of romantic, terms. And she's saying, go back to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Verse eight, verse nine, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. So Naomi, recognizing that these two women um, Orpah and Ruth, if they come back with her, it's probably not going to go well. They will be foreigners from a godless pagan land in the eyes of the Israelites, who are likely to be rejected, perhaps abused, perhaps treated very poorly. And she, she tries to persuade them that they may go back. But at the same time, she's praying, That the Lord, it's the Lord's covenant name, that Yahweh will grant you to find rest and a husband and so on. So there's this rather mixed message here. So she kisses them and they lift up their voices and weep. There is no doubt that there's quite a lot of strong relationship here. Uh, Naomi and her daughters-in-law really do care for one another and love one another. They've been bound together, I guess, by the tragedy that they've faced together. They're all widows, and they say to her, verse ten: "No, we we will return with you to your people." Naomi, though, uh, wants to persuade them otherwise. Um, she enters in this business now. Um, you know, I, I, even if I had sons now, would you wait for them to become a sufficiently adult that you can marry them? Um, I'm too old to have a husband, and so on. It, it just wouldn't work. So, um, no, my daughters. It's, verse 13, it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Isn't it interesting that Naomi, having, I would suggest, brought about with Elimelech, her own unfortunate consequences through rebellion, recognizes that the consequences that she's facing have been brought about by the Lord. The Lord has disciplined her and brought her to this place where she turns It's all very emotional. Verse 14, they lift up their voices and weep again and Orpah does some maths. Or as they say in America, she does some math. See, I can speak many languages. I'm hoping Jack's impressed, but he's deep in the scriptures, which is very good. So Orpah does some math and she goes, hmm. So it could be Judah plus mm, a whole bunch of unhappy cultural stuff that I'm not really au fait with and a foreign god different from Chemosh and so on that I worship uh, what does that equal? For me it equals probably a pretty hopeless situation and it won't be good i am a foreigner in a strange land, they won't want me, they won't like me, there won't be opportunities for me I see nothing good in this I'm going to bail now and go home Naomi says to Ruth, look, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. It's not a very encouraging thing to say, is it? Look, she's going back to Chemosh and the Moabite people, all God-haters and it's hopeless, um, go after her. But Ruth will have nothing of it. And here is one of the one of the really amazing passages in scripture. And it's chiastic in form. In other words, it's very structured and there's some outer elements, top and bottom, and then a couple of inner elements inside the top and bottom, and then the center part, which for um, a Hebrew writer means that's where the emphasis is. So let me try and help you with that. So the outer parts are verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. It's it's an imprecation. Don't urge me to go. And then look at verse seventeen um, B. May the Lord do so m- and to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. It's an imprecatory curse on herself. So please don't you urge me to leave. And if I were to, may God do more, do so to me and more, if anything but death parts me from you. So those are the outer statements. And then inside those, we've got, um, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. And then where you die, verse 17, I will die, and there will I be buried. So in life, I'll be with you. And in death, I'll be with you. But then right in the middle, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. It's an extraordinary undertaking and assertion by Ruth. It is fantastic. How does she come to this? Well, the text doesn't really tell us. Obviously she saw the family and she married into the family. And so she had some understanding from that of Yahweh. But I think we'd want to say, wouldn't we, that this must be the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. He has granted her understanding way beyond anything that we would expect. And she makes this extraordinary commitment to her mother-in-law that I bind myself to you um, with everything that I can, and I call upon God to witness that I do this. I will live with you. I will die with you. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Now, can I ask this evening, you're all here, which is grace, but I can't see into your hearts. I don't know who you are binding yourself to. I know that we can very easily deceive ourselves. And each one of us needs to examine so carefully what or who is it that I've made my binding commitment to. Is your binding commitment to family? It's understandable. It would even in some respects be seen as very positive. My family I will be with you in life. I will be with you when I die. I will stick with you. You will be my family. It might be good, but it's not enough. Sadly for some, it's career, isn't it? Whatever else happens, I am worshipping at the altar of my career. I have an ambition by age X to have achieved Y. My desire is by certain age to have accumulated wealth to such and such a level. I wish to be an influencer and shaker. It may be that my chosen field is politics. I wish to be a minister of state. I want to be prime minister. I want to join the military and rise to general rank. The possibilities are endless, aren't they? So what is it that your heart is binding yourself to? Perhaps it's it's a person. Perhaps it's somebody that you you are completely convinced. If you tie yourself intimately to them, they will bring to you in your union, your match, happiness and joy and fulfillment. And in the words of the, the Hollywood film, all you desire is to grow old together. but my friends, that they're all will-of-the-wisps. There's only one. There is only one we can bind ourselves to who can truly deliver all, all that we desire and need. And that one is the Lord Jesus Christ. So could you put yourself here And say these things about the Lord Jesus Christ. Please don't ask me to go away from you. Lord Jesus, I commit myself to you. And the Lord do more so to me. And more also, if anything else should come between you and I. I will serve you in life. I will trust you in death. Your people will be my people. And you are my God. Is that where you are? Is it where you are? Paul could say, couldn't he, about the Jews, he would say, I would wish myself accursed in order that they might know salvation in Jesus Christ. And it would be no good me saying that to you because it's not a trade I can do. But what I can say to you is this. This evening, by God's grace, you're sitting under the word and seeing this extraordinary commitment by a pagan Moabitess who's seen the truth. And my challenge to you must be Can you see this? Can you make this commitment to Jesus? That's the present. And then finally, the future. So after Ruth has made this extraordinary undertaking to Naomi and explained where her heart is, the two of them go on. Naomi falls silent and they go on and they come to Bethlehem. And then, of course, it's the whole normal stuff. And, Ooh, have you seen? Gosh, could that possibly be? I remember when she left here with her family, and it all looked so good. And now, look at them, the mess she's been in. She's has been to Moai. Blah, 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 blah. All that stuff. And uh, Naomi actually preempts as much as she can, doesn't she? She says to them, "Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me Sweet. Call me Mara. Bitter. I went away full." And the Lord's brought me back. She's completely wrong. She doesn't recognize that what she has brought back with her in terms of Ruth would be the greatest blessing short of the Lord that she could have. But, you know, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Well, he's disciplined her, and that's certainly true, and it's been a harsh discipline. I went away full. I've been brought back empty. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem and it's the beginning of the barley harvest. That's the first harvest and then to be further harvest to come. So okay, that's fine. But now, at the beginning of verse two, we have this wonderful glimpse, this spoiler alert, for what is going to happen. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Well, yeah, okay, fair enough. Is that significant? Well, there's, there's a lovely bit here uh, in the Hebrew, which we've got here translated, a worthy man. If I take you back to Judges 6, um, the people of Israel are really struggling. Every time they try and amass a bit of food or whatever, enemies come in and whip it. And so they're just really under the heel. They're, um, they're defenseless, they're powerless, they're exploited. It's going really badly. Um, and so the Lord decides that he's going to raise up a judge. And this judge has the name Gideon. And so um, in Judges 6, 11, we've got the angel of the Lord coming. And he sat under the terebinth tree at Uphrah, which belonged to Joash the Abir's right, and so on. And Gideon is hiding from his enemies down in a, a dugout at wine press and trying to beat out some wheat in the hopes the Midianites won't notice anything and will leave him alone so he has some food and this poor guy who's hiding away he's on his own he's powerless he can't do anything he's scared he's going to be spotted and the angel of the Lord comes to him verse 12 and says to him the Lord is with you O mighty man of valor it seems incredibly ironic What on earth is valor in this man? He's sniveling away in a dugout winepress trying to hide from the Midianites. What's the valor? I can't see it. There's no bravery there. And you can imagine Gideon looking around and going, where's this mighty man of valor? And yet, those of you who know the Old Testament story will know that actually God did use Gideon in a remarkable way. And as Gideon trusted in the Lord, he was used to achieve a great deal. But the point is this, mighty man of valor in uh, Judges 6 is the same phrase as a worthy man in Ruth chapter 2 verse 1. Now, uh, Contextually, when the Hebrew phrase is used in a military context, it means a mighty man of valor. So if, if he was here today, he'd have a chest full of medals and he would be an impressive warrior. When it's not used in that context, when it's used in a in a more civilian context, it means somebody who is of great weight and value to society. Somebody who is very esteemed, very honored, and has tremendous resource. What the narrator is saying to us is, here is this woman who's arrived back and as far as she's concerned, life has been trashed. No husband, no sons, no grandchildren. She is a tired older woman with no prospects. Not only that, she brings in her train a Moabess. God's warned us about them. We're to have nothing to do with them. They're not allowed in the temple for at least ten generations. We're to avoid them. They mislead our people into worshipping foreign, strange idols and gods. But what Naomi desperately needs is a man of substance, a man of great valour, if you like, a man who can provide for her in all her desperate need one who can bring for her everything she lacks, make it up, bring her back, restore to a position where she enjoys all the favours that she remembers from long ago. And there is a man, and his name is Boaz. And as the story goes on, and it's such a wonderful story, so it is, Boaz becomes her kinsman redeemer, and he provides for her extraordinarily And in God's amazing grace, Ruth enters into the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this way, Bowers is a type for us, a pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. As you and I go out this week to face all that we will face in the Lord's wise providence, we fool ourselves. We fool ourselves if we think we have everything we need. Yeah, I can take whatever this week brings. I'm young, fit, healthy, good-looking, whatever, gifted, and everything's going to go really well and so on. Well, maybe, but maybe not. And in the fullness of time, if the Lord spares us, we end up elderly and increasingly dependent on others. And we find that life brings with it pains and hurts and sadnesses. That our wisdom turns out sometimes to be dire foolishness. We dig holes for ourselves which we fall into. But ultimately, this life is just temporary and it will pass. And we need a man of valour, a worthy man who will stand for us. see, Ruth enters into this amazing undertaking to Naomi, and we admire her for it. it. It's hugely impressive. But actually, in a way, it's misdirected. Yes, Naomi is a relative of this man of Elimelech's clan, Boaz, and Boaz, humanly speaking, will turn out to be the man that she so needs. You and I, we we, we can see, I trust much more clearly, That there is one person who can provide for you and I all that we need to stand now and in glory. There is one who is rich in resource and has every possible supply that you and I could possibly want. And his name is Jesus. Jesus really is the glorious, wonderful answer to our deepest, profoundest needs. So when earlier I urged you to decide who it was that you were making your covenantal undertaking to, and I urged that it be Jesus. The reason is because Jesus is the mighty man of valor, the man that you need to completely fulfill you and provide for you your every true need. It's a wonderful story. But there is a wonderful truth. As you and I go out to face this week. We can go. Knowing that if we trust in the Lord Jesus. We have every resource provided. To fulfill God's purposes for us as he commands. Praise God. Praise God.